Now let's uh, turn to our second reading of scripture and our proclamation will come from this reading. Matthew chapter 6 and at verse 19. And uh, we'll read from that verse to the end of the chapter and all these verses hang together. So let's give diligent attention to them. Matthew chapter 6 and reading at verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Again, may the Lord bless his word to us.
And let's look particularly, well, as I say, all these verses hang together, but let's look at verse 25 particularly. Therefore, I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Now, all the verses that we read there from 19 to 34, they revolve around wealth and possessions. And specifically, they revolve around our attitude to them. And that includes the most basic things in life, right along the spectrum to the luxuries of life. What's our attitude to all these things, food, drink? And clothing. Now, it's no small thing to look at our attitude to these things. The passage here makes clear that our attitude to these things is nothing less than a matter of life and death. And when I say a matter of life and death, I mean, of course, a matter of spiritual life and death. It's as important as that. No one can serve two masters says the Lord, either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to one and despise the other. You cannot, you cannot serve God and mammon, which is an old Aramaic word for wealth. You cannot serve God and mammon. Now, I'm sure I've highlighted this before in the pulpit, but a good number, if not most of Jesus' warnings about covetousness are not actually addressed to the rich. I suppose that's quite a surprising thing if you've only heard it for the first time. But most of his warnings about covetousness are not addressed to the rich. They're really addressed to ordinary people, perhaps even most of them quite poor. Because a good number of these ordinary people are what you would call would-be rich or as Paul calls them in the letter to, the t- to Timothy, those who desire to be wealthy. And one of the reasons that he gives the warning, of course, is in case their desire for wealth, a wealth that they see other people having, in case their desire for that wealth gradually consumes and destroys them spiritually. And the thing is, like every sin, covetousness, can have very small beginnings. It's not easy to detect it. Um, Not easy to detect it even in yourself. But what Christ is telling us in this passage, and elsewhere too, is that covetousness can grow out of simply worrying too much about the things of this life. Even when you have little of them. Things such as food, and clothing, being worried about where they come from. And uh, that, that, in a way, surprises us. I suppose you would say that people in that kind of situation would never be in danger of coveting things. But what he's drawing our attention to is the fact that simply worrying too much about them can lead to an obsession about them, which, if these things increase, will never let go. You begin to focus all the time about the things of this life, food, drink, clothing, and so on. So the call in this passage is not just to be careful to avoid excess of these things, 
That's important enough. We have to be careful to avoid excess. But he's warning us not to worry about them at all. Whatever our situation, do not worry about your life. What you will eat or what you will drink or what you will put on. Now, I suppose right away that many of us would feel that uh, something like this is not really too relevant for us in the sense that we can't be anxious about food and clothing anyway because we've never had it so good and these things have never been so plentiful. I mean, who's had to worry? Who, who amongst ourselves today, this morning, have had to worry about food, drink or clothing? Now, while that's true, we need to remember a few things. First of all, it may be true of us, all right, but it's not true for many others. And it might be easy to make superficial judgments about who it's true for and who it isn't. The other thing is that it hasn't been true for all of us all the time. Many of us uh, this morning, including myself, can remember a time when food and clothing were quite scarce. And every single garment that you had was to be valued. And food was precious and more expensive than it is today. Far more expensive. Taking away the bulk of your weekly income. The other thing is this. You'll have noticed recently how quickly things just could turn around. Now, you see, prior to this particular uh, pestilence that we've had for the last few weeks, it was maybe difficult for you to foresee a situation where these things could really change. But, you know, a few short weeks ago, we just got a, a little glimpse of it. That's all. You'll notice, of course, that it wasn't the shelves with the luxury goods that lay empty. It was the shelves that had the flour and the oil and the pasta and things like that, the basic foodstuffs, empty. And a little panic began just over that. But if God gave the word, and if he sent it, our scarcity could be far more severe than that, and it could be very, very quick. Now, you may still find it hard to picture, but you don't have as much reason to find it difficult to picture. How quickly the basic things in life could become very, very scarce. The other thing is, don't forget where we started this. According to what the Lord says here, there's a close connection between worrying about the things of this life and serving the things of this life as idols. There's a close connection. And bear that in mind as we proceed. A close spiritual connection about worrying too much about the things of this life and beginning to serve the things of this life as idols, the most important things in the world. So let's look carefully at what the Lord is teaching us here. It's another lesson, I suppose, regarding worry and anxiety. And a few weeks back, we looked at that. But in these times, it's a precious thing to look at. Worry and anxiety um, is not just a problem in itself, but it can lead, as we saw, to idolatry. So let's look at it carefully, what the Lord would have us learn. And the primary thing that he's wanting us to learn, of course, is don't worry. The word worry comes from 
a word meaning divided and therefore distracted. Uh, that's what happens when you worry. Your mind is divided. In other words, there's a section of your mind that is always obsessing about the thing that's causing you a problem. And it means that whatever else you're doing or supposed to be doing, you can't do it properly because a section of your mind is troubled and you're increasingly consumed by that thing so that nothing else is properly done. So Christ tells us not to be worried, not to be distracted, not to be divided in mind and not to be troubled. But of course, Christ doesn't just command that. He gives good reasons why we shouldn't be like that. And it's good that he does that. I mean, one of the most fruitless things to say to a person who's worried is, don't worry. But the Lord gives good reasons why we shouldn't worry. And essentially, in these verses, he provides three of these reasons. And the first one is this. Don't worry, he says, about material things because it is futile to do so. It is pointless. Which of you, he says, by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? Now, in the Bible, uh, carefulness is commended. Paul says, for example, about Timothy that no one was careful about his condition except himself. It's good to take care, but it's not good to be full of care and to be distracted by it. In other words, with respect to today and tomorrow, it's one thing to plan prayerfully. That is a good thing to do. And uh, we're to plan as we're able to do and to plan prayerfully and enjoying God's peace. But it's another thing to be driven by distraction by today and tomorrow, at potential difficulties and possibilities. And you'll notice that the Lord, when he closes this particular part of the sermon, he actually mentions tomorrow particularly. Therefore, do not worry, he says in verse 34, about tomorrow. For tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. And um, I think the reason he particularly emphasizes tomorrow here is because he knows that a lot of our worry about what we eat and drink and wear, is related to tomorrow. A lot of our difficulties are projecting ahead and imagining possible situations. He says, leave that. Leave that. Learn to live that day-by-day life. Thankful for the day, using the day, enjoying the day, serving God in the day, and not to be so anxious about tomorrow. And it's interesting that when Christ in in the so-called Lord's Prayer um, calls on us to pray for necessities, he calls on us to pray for daily ones. Give us this day our daily bread. Not to be anxious about tomorrow's bread, but give us this day the bread for the day and don't be anxious about the future. Because it is futile. Um, Worry accomplishes nothing. I think we all know that. That's the tragedy about the whole thing. Worry accomplishes nothing. Which of you, he says, by worrying can add one cupid to his stature. Now, there's a a different way of reading those words. And uh, 
people who know the Greek language will be familiar with that. It can just as easily read, be read, which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his age or his lifespan? Now, on one level, it may seem strange to talk about adding a cubit to a lifespan, and I think that's why they've chosen the word stature, as though the issue here was growing 18 inches taller. But is that really the issue? The word stature certainly means age primarily. That's what the Greek word means. And uh, sometimes the biblical writers can speak of extending time by a physical measurement. You have made my day as a handbreadth. We speak ourselves of a lifespan. Certainly, I think what the Lord is conveying here is that we cannot add any measurement to our lifespan. In other words, our days are ordained and determined, and anxiety won't lengthen any of them. Needless worry about life and what it will bring will add nothing to the span of your life. In fact, it shortens it. It shortens it. It weakens you of strength. It takes away your peace. And because it takes away your peace, it takes away your joy. I mean, who can possibly have joy when they don't have peace? So if it takes away your peace, it takes away your joy, distracts you from your duties, robs you of your strength. So that's the first thing. Don't worry about material things because it's futile to worry. That, of course, is why, and I'll come back to this a little bit later, that's why he turns he, he calls us elsewhere, or Paul calls us elsewhere, to turn that worry into prayer, does he? Be anxious for nothing, but by prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God. Convert worry into prayer. But the second reason he calls us not to worry about material things is because it's dangerous to do so. Now, this takes us back to where we were at the beginning. The surprising link between being worried about things and serving things in an idolatrous way. So don't worry about material things because it's dangerous to do so. Moving from worrying about things you need to obsessing with them long after that need's actually gone. And to highlight that, I want you to notice what he says in verse 31. Therefore, he says, do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For, he says, after all these things the Gentiles seek. But, but do we not all seek these things? Do we not all need to wear something? Do we not all need to eat, and do we not all need to drink? Well, yes, we do, he says. But he says that the life of the Gentile or the life of the unbeliever is characterized by these questions all the time. It's become their obsession. Their whole life revolves around food and drink and clothes. That's how they measure. And of course, food, drink and clothes here is just a, a threefold representation of the material life generally. So it includes possessions generally and not do houses or cars or whatever that's their life that's how they measure their happiness that's how they measure success so it's after these things that the gentiles seek 
So you beware, the Lord says, that you don't gradually adopt their priorities. That by thinking too much about material things, period, even if you really lack them, even if you really lack them, even if you don't have much in the way of food or clothes, by overthinking these things, you begin to gradually shift your own priorities in life. And spiritual things suddenly become less important. Now, if that wasn't possible, the Lord wouldn't warn us against it. You'll notice here that he's not speaking to people who have a lot. He's speaking to people who have little and who are maybe beginning to obsess about having a lot. And there are three steps to this declension. In verse 19, you can start to take more care about laying up treasures on earth than in heaven. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. These securities are not so secure. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For he says, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Now, this is a person who is changing priority in life. And instead of systematically and carefully laying up heavenly treasure through their thought process and through their decisions in life, they are beginning to systematically give more attention to laying up for themselves treasures upon the earth. There's a change in priority. A change in priority. That takes place in the heart. And here's the the first step to declension. The second one is in the next verse, verse 22. The lamp of the body, he says, is the eye. In other words, the eye guides the whole body. In what sense? Well, if your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. Now, the eye here just represents what you see and what you desire. And if what you see and desire is focused more on earthly things than on the good things of the kingdom, well, he says, your whole body, your whole life, your whole lifestyle will gradually conform to that. And instead of your whole body being full of light, that's spiritual knowledge, faith in God, love for the brethren, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Instead of your whole body being filled with these things, a life of Christian worship and Christian service, he says, gradually, because your eyes are focused on earthly things, your whole body will become full of darkness. Ignorance, growing unbelief, selfishness, And with it, uncleanness, hatred, jealousies, wrath, envy, strife. In other words, you you are following in your life the priorities that you began to set. In other words, in verses 19 and 20, you started to lay up for yourself more systematically treasures on earth. And because you became more focused on earthly treasure, than you were on heavenly treasure, suddenly that's having an effect 
upon your whole body, upon your whole life. Your eye has shifted focus. And because it's the lamp of the body, your body is now being filled with that darkness instead of being filled with life. Instead of becoming more godly and more spiritual and more heavenly, the tragedy is that you're becoming more like the world, more earthly. You're following the priority that you set. And the ultimate final step in this declension is an awful one in verse 24, because the rubber will always meet the road, will it not? There will always be an acid test. Whose are you? No one can serve two masters in verse 24. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, or at least you'll be loyal to the one and you'll despise the other. You cannot serve God and Mama. Maybe you don't love this new master that you've got. Maybe you wouldn't say openly, well, I love the things of this world. I, I love food and clothing and drink. I love these things. Ah, but Christ says, are you loyal to that one more than you are to the other? You will either hate one and love the other, or at least you'll be loyal to the one and you'll despise the other. Either way, whether it's out of passionate love for worldly things or just this loyal service, you've got a new master. A new master. And that's why self-examination is important. I mentioned that um, every judgment God brings has mercy with it. Got mercy with it. The only one that doesn't is the last judgment. And the mercy to us here is that it's a call to us all to reflect, to consider and to meditate. Who do we serve? Who is our master? Where is your time, your energy? What do you, what do you value most? What do you think most about in life? Christ says you can't serve two masters. He doesn't say it's difficult. He says, you can't do it. So if your heart is set increasingly on earthly treasures, then you beware, because that's another God. That's why he gives the word possessions or wealthier the name mammon, which is an Aramaic term for wealth, but also an Aramaic term for a deity, for a God. He says, <laughs> watch who your God is. Watch in case everything you've got or everything you want to have is really your God. So it's dangerous. And notice that it all began with worrying too much. There's a lack of faith that goes with worry, you know. That's the danger with it. I'm not, I'm not trying to be insensitive here to some people, well, <laughs> myself included, who are, who are prone perhaps by nature to anxiety or to worry, but there's a lack of faith that goes with it. Um, Jesus mentions that. Will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? But I'll, I'll come to that in a moment. But it's dangerous. It's dangerous. To worry about natural, material things then is, is futile on the one hand, doesn't gain you anything, but it's also dangerous. Leads to obsessions with worldly things. But the main lesson here in this passage is the third one that worrying about material things is needless. Needless. And the reason it's needless has to do with your relationship with God. And Christ is calling you to, 
to recognize that relationship, what it is, and to make sure that it governs your life properly. And the relationship with God, he describes in a certain way. He, he doesn't say that God is your God simply. But you'll notice in the passage here where he's calling you not to worry, that God, he, he highlights that God is your heavenly Father. That's who he is. In verse 26, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. He's not their heavenly Father. He doesn't sustain a heavenly fatherly relationship to the birds of the air that he feeds, but he is yours. And the argument is a classic argument from the lesser to the greater. He feeds them. Feeds you. Verse 32, the same thing. Your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. Now, the fatherhood of God here isn't a reference to the fact that God is our creator, just as he's the creator of the lilies of the field or the creator of the birds of the air. The heavenly fatherhood of God here is, the, is that special fatherhood um, that he bears towards us because he has adopted us into his family. And he's adopted us into his family by uniting us to his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, so that we become sons with him. We are sons in Christ, and we are sons with Christ. We have the same relationship. Now, of course, he's in the relationship by eternal generation. He has always been a son generated from the Father. We are in the relationships of son, sonship by adoption, but it's the same relationship, and we're brought that close. We're brought that close. He is our Heavenly Father, just as he is the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's brought out beautifully at the prior to the ascension, when Christ says, after his resurrection, he says to the disciples that I ascend to my father and to your father. Now, I know I've said this to you before, but I thought in the earlier part of my Christian life that by, by differentiating my father and your father, that Christ was very much differentiating between his sonship and ours. That's what I thought. I came I'm sure by the leading of God to think of it precisely the other way around. Christ is not differentiating the sonship there. He is, in fact, uniting them together. He's saying the most staggering thing. He's saying, I am going to the one who is both your father and my father, our father together. So as he is the father of the Lord Jesus Christ, so exactly he is your father too. Now, in our situation, whatever it is, as Paul says, whether we are full or whether uh, we are empty, whether we have much or whether we have little, he says, I want you to remember the relationship in which you stand with God. He is your heavenly father. So in that light, Christ reminds us of the following truths. First, he reminds us that he knows your needs. In verse 32, and the second part of verse 32, we read it a minute ago. Your heavenly Father knows that you need all 
these things. Now, there's a wonderful comfort in that when you just stop to be comforted by it. A wonderful comfort in it. God knows your exact situation, and he knows precisely what your needs are, be they as basic as food or drink and clothing. He hasn't told us that he knows our needs to stop us praying for these needs. No, we're to ask for them. Remember, prayer is an antidote to worry. Instead of worrying about it, just ask. Ask God. That's, that's the substitute. Ask him. Give us this day our daily bread. It's right and fitting that you should ask him for your needs and that you should thank him for providing them. I wonder if our sheer ingratitude is one of the reasons for the judgment that he sent us. It's right to ask for our needs. But here's the reminder that he does know, and he knows them as your heavenly father. And I suppose that leads us very naturally to the second thing. Your heavenly father doesn't just know your needs He cares about your needs, and he cares about them precisely because he is your heavenly father. He he cares for lesser creatures, after all, that aren't his sons and daughters. With respect to food, we're told that he gives food to the birds of the air. Um, Look at the birds of the air in verse 26. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly father feeds them. He feeds them. The food that they get is not by accident, but God provides the food for them. And as for clothing, well, God stoops down to clothe vegetation. He takes the lily of the field and he makes her a beautiful flower. Um, That's for our benefit. I mean, Calvin himself says that God makes things that minister to our necessities, and he also makes things that minister to our pleasures. This lily of the field here, like other vegetation, would eventually just be taken and used as basic fuel for the oven. But he says, look at the care with which God clothes it. He makes this lily, he says, more beautiful than King Solomon was in all his glory. Glory. Consider that lily of the field. The Greek word here is look at it carefully and closely. Why shouldn't we anyway? The the God who made the natural world is the God who made the spiritual world. And there's something about these two worlds that run in parallel. And there's something about each one that casts light on the other. That's why the man or woman of God that's close to the earth, working the soil or working the sea, learn many, many things about God that Others who don't do that won't, because his hand is to be traced in the Consider, look closely, the Greek says. Look closely at the lily of the field. Look how God has adorned it, how God has beautified it. And it's just vegetation. Do you not think that God will look after your food and your drink and your clothing when you are of far more value than many sparrows or far more value than lilies of the field. And uh, that, of course, reminds us that not only does God know our needs, not only does he care for our needs, 
but he provides for our needs. He'll do it. He'll provide for his own family. Now, all these things are very, very precious. He promises that. Seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added to you. There's the provision there, is it not? Shall be, that's a promise. All these things shall be added to you. Or just as we read a minute ago in Philippians, my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. So your heavenly father knows your needs, cares for your needs, and provides for your needs. And and that takes us back, really, where we began. Don't worry because it's futile to do it, gains you nothing. Dangerous to do it, can lead you to idolatry. And it's needless to do it because your heavenly father will care and provide. But before I leave this, um, I mentioned near the beginning that the great antidote, of course, to worry is prayer. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, shall guard your hearts and minds by Christ Jesus. Now, if prayer is the antidote to worry, let me urge you to a threefold prayer on the basis of the words of this passage here, a threefold prayer. The first prayer is a prayer for greater faith. You'll notice that in verse 30, where Jesus says, if God so clothes the grass of the field, that's the lily, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little Faith. Now, why does he say that? Why does he say that? Well, obviously, there is a connection here between worrying and having small faith. If if our faith was greater in our heavenly Father, if our faith was greater in his love for us and in his care for us and the certainty of his provision for us, then we wouldn't worry about it so much. Oh, but you say, how can I increase my faith? Well, how did the disciples increase it? Do you remember that they prayed for it? They did. Lord, increase our faith, they said. And it did grow. It did grow. You pray for that too. Pray for a greater faith in the love, in the care and provision of your heavenly father for you. So instead of being anxious, pray, pray for faith. The second thing that you need to pray for, as well as greater faith, is greater obedience. Now that's important too, because you'll notice that God's provision and care for you here has something to do with making sure that he's first in your life. That takes us to the famous words of verse 33. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, 
and all these things shall be added to you. These things there is a reference to your food and drink and clothing. These things that the Gentiles seek. Your heavenly father knows you need them, he says, but seek first the kingdom and his righteousness and these things shall be added to you. Now, seeking the kingdom and his righteousness just means really making sure that you're putting him first in your life. Sometimes this verse is preached to unbelievers. And, well, yes, you absolutely can preach it to unbelievers, but it is addressed here first and foremost to Christian people to make sure that you are seeking first the kingdom and his righteousness. Now, the righteousness spoken of there is not the imputed righteousness of Christ, which is put to your account when you believe. That's assumed here. The the righteousness that's spoken of is the righteousness of walking with God, um, doing what he wants and putting him first. There are lots of little tests in that. You remember when Elijah was, uh, when he came across the widow of Zarephath and she was making her last meal for herself and her son, Elijah put a strange test before. He asked her to make a cake for himself first. And uh, that was a test regarding the woman, regarding her practical kindness, regarding her sense of uh, acknowledgement of God and serving his prophet and acknowledging his prophet and so on. And and God reward that because she sought first the kingdom. She sought first his righteousness. And these other things were added to her. She had a cruise of oil that never got empty and a barrel of meal. So remember that. And maybe... Uh, the worry or the anxiety is checking you to make sure that you're actually putting God first. So pray for greater faith, pray for greater obedience, and last but not least, pray for greater contentment. Now, friends, contentment is a a neglected grace in our thoughts. It, It really is, but it's a precious Christian grace, especially especially in a day of striving and in a day of competition. And everything is so competitive. Um, The whole world, the Western world, with its materialistic focus, has, has laid such emphasis on discontent. You need, get, have this, you must have this. Whereas the scripture says, be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And is that not enough? Be content with such things as you have, for he himself has said, I will never leave you, nor will I forsake you. Or as Paul says to Timothy, we brought nothing into this world, he says, and it is certain that we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing, he doesn't say lots of it, having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. Because he says contentment with godliness, or godliness with contentment, whichever way you want to put it, contentment with godliness is true gain. It is the real gain. It is the real possession. To be content with what God's given you. And to be godly, seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness, that, he says, is contentment. Thou shalt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed.
upon thee, and they're truly blessed to know these things. So why worry? Do not worry. Sufficient for the day is its own evil. God will take care of you and of all of us, his children. May the Lord bless uh, these thoughts on his own holy word.